going to be looking at Revelation chapter 19, which provides a pretty straightforward account of what's going to happen after the judgment of the spiritual and physical Babylon, which we've been talking about the last couple of sessions. Let's go ahead and pray before we jump into this. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that is, again, life-giving, and thank you that you've loved us enough to tell us what's going to happen. Uh, I ask you that you give us greater and greater understanding of your plans for the end days, and we want to be ones who are prepared for it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. A friend of mine noted that there are actually three celebrations that take place here in Revelation chapter 19. One is a victory party, the second is a wedding party, and the third is a war party. And if you understand those three dynamics, then you'd understand the whole chapter. There's going to be a victory celebration taking place because God has judged Babylon, this, this false religious and economic system that turned people away from the true and living God. There's going to be a wedding party that involves believers in Jesus. And then there's going to be a war party where we're going to join Christ as he battles against the kings of the earth in this battle called the Battle of Armageddon. Now, over the years, I've run into a lot of people that struggle with what we're going to talk about here today and, and toward the end of Revelation, because I think they struggle with the idea that there's going to be a judgment, that one day God's going to judge this world, and maybe part of the reason they struggle with it is that they're afraid, I'm not sure. But for believers, the fact that judgment is coming is actually a cause of celebration for us. In Proverbs 21 and verse 5, we read, Justice executed is a joy to the righteous, but a terror to those who practice iniquity. Now, thankfully, by the time we get to Revelation chapter 19, believers are already in heaven, and we're getting ready to celebrate this judgment that's coming upon the godless systems of this world. With that in mind, let's begin reading in verse 1 of Revelation 19. After this, I heard something like a loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true or valid and righteous, because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his saints, which are the Christians and maybe the Jews as well, that was on her hands. Now, I want to remind you again that the prostitute that's referred to in these verses is the same group we've talked about in the past. It's religious and governmental Babylon, the system that is going to be responsible for luring all people away from the true and living God. By this point in the story, literally everyone on the earth is, is going to have given their allegiance to the Antichrist, and there's this whole system that's economic but also spiritual that is going to lure all people away from a true love for our God. And we're, I'm reminded that, of course, as Christians, we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this system is the thing that's lured people away from that sincere love for God. Now, they're being judged, the nations of the earth are going to be judged for the fact that they did lure people away from Christ, but also because of the blood that they shed. 
We know, as we've talked about earlier, that in the last times, as we get into this tribulation period, beginning in the middle of the seven years, that there's going to be an intense persecution that breaks out against both the Christians and the Jews, and they're being judged for this as well. Now, the chapter begins with noting that there was a loud voice, like a vast multitude in heaven, and they were saying specifically, hallelujah. The last time that we read about a multitude in heaven that was praising God is found in Revelation 7 and verse 9, which I believe is a reference to the rapture. Reading Revelation 7, 9 again, we read after this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were robed in white with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. This group that we read about in chapter 7 and verse 9, they're carrying palm branches, and I made the point that when Jesus came into Jerusalem to really be recognized as a king, he was rejected the first time. But the people had their palm branches, and that was the first event we called Palm Sunday. Well, this is describing the real Palm Sunday where Jesus is getting ready to be proclaimed as the king. And so what we see happening in Revelation 19 is that it's the setup for the establishment of Christ's throne on this earth. And this group is up in heaven, and I think, it's, I think we're part of the group. We are this multitude. And we're celebrating the fact that things are getting ready for Jesus to reign. Continuing in verse 3, we read, a second time they said, hallelujah. Her smoke ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who is seated on the throne, saying, amen, hallelujah. A voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all his slaves who fear him, both small and great. What we're reading about here sounds to me like what's called a responsive reading. Those of you that have been part of traditional churches, you, you're familiar with responsive readings. In a responsive reading, what happens is a minister or one of the leaders reads a, a section of scripture, maybe a verse, sometimes just a statement, and then the congregation is prompted to respond. And that's exactly what's happening here. This multitude in heaven began by saying, hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to God because his judgments are true. And then in response, the 24 elders and the four angelic beings fall down in worship and they say, amen, hallelujah. The word amen in my Bible study means something is certain, valid, truthful, or faithful. It's often used at the end of biblical songs, hymns, and prayers. Basically, amen is a statement of agreement. So when someone says something and then you say amen, you're, you're saying, I agree with you. And this is what's happening in heaven. This multitude, and I think, I think we are the multitude who have arrived in heaven after the rapture. We're saying hallelujah, and we're celebrating this real Palm Sunday that's taking place. And then the, the others that are already in heaven plus the angels say amen, and they say hallelujah as well. And mostly, again, what we're celebrating is the fact that there's a judgment that's coming, that God's getting ready to judge the world. Moving on to verse six. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, 
and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Alleluia, because our Lord God, the Almighty, has begun to reign. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Now, this is again the, the wedding party that we're reading about taking place here. Now, earlier in the book of Revelation, when we read about cascading waters, how a voice sounded like cascading waters, it was actually a reference to Jesus' voice. And then in chapter 14, the cascading waters were apparently a reference to an angelic choir. And so it's hard to say who's speaking here when it says this voice like a loud multitude, the sound of cascading waters spoke and made this announcement. And the, the announcement again is basically it's time for Jesus to reign. It's hard to say who that is. But something is being celebrated here. It's an announcement of a, a wedding ceremony. It's time for the lamb to marry his bride and we are the bride of Christ. In the Old Testament, Israel was depicted as being like a wife to God. Many people, in fact, look at the story of Mount Sinai where God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, that the way that entire scene is depicted is that of a wedding ceremony. The various elements that are found in that scene are the elements that are used in a Jewish wedding. And so in the Old Testament, what was happening at Mount Sinai is God was saying basically to Israel, I choose you to be my wife, and and I will be your God. And so you're going to be my people, I'm going to be your God, and we're uniting together in kind of a a wedding ceremony. And so they were like the, the wife of God. We read in the New Testament that the church is kind of like the bride of Christ, and of course a bride is someone who's not yet married to him. And so in Revelation 19, we read about this scene in heaven, a marriage is about to take place. In 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2, even Paul referred to this idea of a bride and a wedding ceremony that was going to take place, or at least uses this analogy to describe our relationship with God. In 2 Corinthians 11, 2, Paul said, I'm jealous for you with a jealous God or godly jealousy because I promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. And so Paul was saying, we're we're this bride, and we're the, the, the coming bride of Christ, but we're not yet there. In Revelation 19, we need to be married. There needs to be a wedding ceremony. The Lamb of God is getting ready to take a people for himself like a groom would take a bride. And in Revelation 19.8, we read that we're given fine linen to wear. And of course, we think of a wedding when we think of this, this fine white garment here. And it represents, in this case, the righteous acts of the saints. Saints are ones who are just set apart for God. And so we're made righteous by Christ. But in this case, it says that the, the whiteness is related to the righteous acts, the things that we do that prove that we are children of God. Now, putting all this together with the previous couple chapters, the prostitute, who was, again, this Babylon, this system that lured people away from God, has been judged, and now believers who remain faithful and true, who did not buy into the Antichrist system, and many of them who died as martyrs, are now going to be united to Christ in a marriage of sorts. 
Now, the Apostle Paul also alluded to this in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. He said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. In Ephesians 5, Paul lays out what a marriage should look like, how a husband and wife are to relate to one another. And then when we get toward the end of the chapter here, he makes this point, really what I'm talking about is the church in Christ. That we're to be united with Christ. That the church is like to be the bride of Christ. And he's to take us. He's our husband in this sense. Jesus, of course, also alluded to this in a number of his parables. When he used parables related to a marriage ceremony. And he talked about the fact that when the bridegroom comes, would people be ready for him, to accept him, and to receive him. Now let's go back to Revelation 19 and continue reading, beginning in verse 9. Then he, and this is likely an angel, said to me, write, those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb are fortunate. He also said to me, these words of God are true. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow slave with you and your brothers who have the testimony about Jesus. Worship God. Because the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, there's a little bit here. It starts by saying how blessed are those to be part of this marriage ceremony. And it's gonna be wonderful for us to be joined and united with Christ in this this ceremony, this one who is coming to reign. Now, several times in the, the, the the book of Revelation, we find John bowing down to an angel and and worshiping an angel. And it demonstrates to me just how glorious these angels are. In fact, John is obviously having trouble deciding who's talking to him. I don't blame him for that. Every time John begins to worship an angel, the angel corrects him and says, I'm not, I'm just like you are. Don't worship, don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant. I like the fact, by the way, that this is what was recorded in Revelation 19 where the angel said, I'm a fellow slave or servant with you and your brothers. It's saying that we're serving together with the angels. You know, we're kind of put on this evil or uh, equal footing with these angels in our service to Christ. Now, verse 10 ends with worship God because the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Uh, This is a confusing statement. A scholar by the name of G.K. Bale suggests that it means those giving the testimony to and from Jesus are prophetic people. But I think this is the point of that statement. He's just saying this is a true and trusted prophecy from the Spirit of God. In other words, you can take this to the bank. All of this is gonna happen. Now let's keep reading. We are going to be leaving now a wedding ceremony, a wedding feast, a wedding party, and then we see a change that takes place in verse 11. The wedding is over, a battle is about to begin. This is what I'd call the war party. Beginning in verse 11, then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider is called faithful and true and he judges and makes war in righteousness. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe stained with blood and his name is the word of God. 
Verse 11 through the end of Revelation 19 describes this battle we believe is the battle of Armageddon. The rider on this white horse is Jesus. Now, I want to remind you that this isn't the first time we read about a, a rider on a white horse. Earlier in Revelation, we read about the four horses of the apocalypse, as they're called, and one of them was a white horse. And I told you back then that I thought that white horse is representative of the false Christs and specifically the Antichrist. Well, now we find the true Christ riding on a horse as well. He's called, though, by the title Word of God. He's named the Word of God. That's what his name is here. And of course, this title should sound familiar to us. This was the title that... John gave him, or God did, but through John in the very first gospel that John wrote, or the first book in John 1, verses 1 through 5, where we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Life was in him. And this life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. Now, why is Jesus called the Word? That his name is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, words are used to communicate. And I think this is an indication that Jesus is the clearest and final communication to the world concerning the identity of God. If you see Jesus, you are seeing God. The writer of Hebrews said something similar. He talked about the fact that in the past, prophets spoke in various ways and at various times, but in the last days, God has spoken to us through his son. In other words, his son is the final communication of God, the, the very representation of who God is and what he's like. If you want to know what God's like, you look at Jesus. Now, continuing to verse, in verse 14 of Revelation 19, we read, the armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. Who are the armies here? Well, I would assume that because they're wearing white linen, that it's the same group that was mentioned in verse 8. Let's read verse 8 again. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. And so I take this to mean that we are going to be riding with Christ. It says we're riding on horses as well. And, and you can imagine what this might look like with Jesus leading on this white horse and all of us, the believers of all the ages, riding with him as we begin to enter this battle. Now, I want us to understand something about this battle. The victory belongs to Jesus alone. This is not a battle, again, that we're going to have to fight. And I would suggest that only Jesus is worthy to fight this battle, as we'll see in a minute. Continuing in verse 15. We read, a sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will shepherd or rule them with an iron scepter. Now, when I read this about him ruling them with an iron scepter, my mind immediately goes to, and all of our minds should, I think, go to Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, we read these words, and it's again a description, I think, of, the, of this battle of Armageddon, but maybe even also part of this scene that takes place afterwards. 
In Psalm 2, we read, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, this But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. There's that expression. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. I view Psalm 2 as maybe an appeal to the, 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 the kings who have gathered against Christ to say, you better kneel before this one instead of fight him. Now, I also want to mention this, though, that I see some evidence in the Old Testament, and maybe also here from Psalm 2, that after the uh, Battle of Armageddon and after Christ sets up his millennial kingdom, that there still may be some who will end up reigning as kings, only Jesus will be the king over those kings. And that's something that would be kind of fun to study sometime. I haven't gone into great depth in that, but I see some evidence that there'll be some nations outside of the millennial kingdom somehow after this battle takes place. But going back to the middle of verse 15, we read in Revelation 19, he will also trample the winepress of the fierce wrath or anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now the section began by saying he has a sharp sword that comes from his mouth. Now you think, why would a sharp sword come from his mouth and what could that indicate? Well, again, Jesus is referred to as the word of God and of course, words come out of our mouths. And so what I think is happening here is is this is an allusion to the fact that Jesus is just gonna speak a word and they're gonna be slain. I think that's what's gonna happen. Just like God spoke all of creation into existence, He's going to speak a word at this battle, and they are going to die. Now, this Armageddon battle, the victory, was prophesied in the Old Testament in Isaiah 63, verses 2 through 6, where we read, why are your clothes red? Remember how the garments were red, we just read, and your garments like one who treads a wine press. I trampled the winepress alone and no one from the nations was with me. Of course, we're with him, but we're not from the nations. And again, I think the victory is gonna be his alone. None of us are gonna be able to claim part of this victory. It goes on to say, I trampled them in my anger and ground them underfoot in my fury. Their blood splattered my garments and all my clothes were stained. For I planned the day of vengeance and the year of my redemption came. I looked, but there was no one to help and I was amazed that no one assisted. So my arm accomplished victory for me and my wrath assisted me. I crushed nations in my anger. I made them drunk with my wrath and poured out their blood on the ground. 
Now, I want to, again, make this point, and I had just alluded to it, that the, it says the Lord looked here, and it says there was no one to help. And I think this means that there was nobody that was really qualified to justly fight this battle. Only Jesus. You remember earlier that we read in Revelation chapter, uh, or earlier in the book of Revelation, that only Jesus was the one who was qualified to open the seals on the scroll. That, that you looked all around and nobody in heaven or on earth was able to open the seals. And when that happened, we read that John actually cried about it. He wept at it. And then all of a sudden, Jesus showed up. And I think Jesus is the one who's qualified and uniquely qualified to fight this battle. Now, let's continue reading beginning in verse 19 then. I'm sorry, this, this uh, battle is the same one that was referred to in Revelation 14, beginning in verse 19. Well, we read, so the angel, and by the way, sometimes angels are referenced to Christ. Angel just means a messenger, one sent. So the angel swung a sickle toward the earth and gathered the grapes from the earth's vineyard, and he threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. Then the press was trampled outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles. Now, I think all of this, all of this is a reference to the same battle, the battle of Armageddon and all the blood and destruction, and it's linked in all these references to like when grapes are crushed in order to provide wine. Now, let's go back to Revelation 19 and continue the story in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing on or in the sun, can be translated either way, he, and of course, he must be very, very powerful. He cried out in a loud voice, saying to all the birds flying high overhead, come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of their riders, and the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast the kings of the earth and all their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast, and of course that's the Antichrist, was taken prisoner. And along with him, the false prophet who had performed the signs in his presence. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image with these signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now, I want to remind you that earlier we read how the demonic spirits from Satan, from the Antichrist, and from the false prophet rallied all the kings of the earth to surround this area of Jerusalem where Jesus was going to come to reign. We read about that in Revelation 16, verses 13 and 14. Then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, and from the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle of the great day of God, the Almighty. And so Revelation 14, or 16 here uh, set up the events we're reading about here in chapter 19. And of course, Jesus Christ is going to win this battle. 
What's interesting about what happens toward the end of this battle, though, is we read that the beast, who again is the Antichrist, and the false prophet are going to be captured at this point, and they're going to be thrown alive into the lake of fire, which is a reference to hell, the place that burns with sulfur forever and ever. Now, we're going to read more about hell in, in the, the chapters that follow. What I'd like us to notice about this is that there's one person of this unholy trinity that was not thrown into hell at this time, and that was Satan, and he's going to have a different future that we're going to read about in our next study. God has other plans for Satan, and so it's not time yet for him to be thrown into hell, although before the story is done, he's going to suffer the same fate of these other two. Now, one other thing I want to mention is that at the end of the millennial kingdom, of course, those who don't know Christ are also going to share this fate. And this is, again, when the devil is going to also be cast down into this place. And we'll read about that uh, in the next couple of studies where we see that there's going to be a difference between those who knew Christ, who put their trust in him to be their savior, and those who did not. And this is why it's important for us as believers in Christ to be thinking in terms of those who maybe don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because this is, this is what it takes for us to get right with God so that we can have an eternity in heaven with him. We need to come to a place where we put our trust in Jesus Christ to be our savior. He's the one who died in our place for our sin. He was buried and raised again. And we are told in John 3 that if we will put our trust in him, we'll have eternal life. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. We'll look more into these things in the next uh, couple of chapters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that ultimately you get the victory. We are ones, O Lord, who celebrate the fact that one day uh, all this evil of this world will be put aside, that uh, there is a judgment, and we acknowledge you are righteous and holy. I just love the fact that in this chapter it describes that you are waging a righteous war of all the battles that have ever happened in the world. Yours alone will be the righteous battle. And um, we're so thankful that we're on the right side because of our faith in Christ. But help us, Lord, to have a heart to uh, care about the spiritual welfare of other people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.